about amen? amen? Good. It's my privilege to introduce this uh, older gentleman here this morning. Uh, Hud joins us here at CNBC. This is fourth year in a row that he's been with us. Hud and Nancy live in Denver, Colorado, and Susan and I got to know them in January of 2000 in California when Susan and I were joining the mission that Hud and Nancy were part of. He's been a teacher and counselor for 50 years. They've all been good. He's been a senior pastor. He's a graduate of Dallas Seminary. He loves caring for missionaries all over the world. And it's a great privilege to introduce Dr. Hud McWilliams. Goodness. Uh, let's see. I was told by a friend's uh, cousin, actually, we were visiting them in Texas, and the, the, we'd had a great evening. We'd had a very excited evening. We'd had very animated conversation, and I thought, man, this, is, this was really fun. And we're getting ready to leave, and the guy who was the ex-CEO of a pharmaceutical company and a sales guy, and he was head of sales, like for the world thing, and so he had functioned pretty high up in his organization. He said, uh, he said uh, could I tell you something? Now, when somebody says that to you, you just want to swallow and say, how do I, no, don't <laughs> tell, you know. It's a little bit like when somebody says, can I pray with you? It's hard to refuse, you know. You say, well, okay, go ahead. So he, I said, sure, you know, and he said, well, you know, he said, I really enjoyed our conversation tonight, but he said, I think people would listen to you more if you smiled more. <laughs> I just want to get that out of the way early so you know I've got it in me, I can smile. <laughs> We're actually going to take a trip this morning in a pretty serious way, and I'm fairly intensely wound anyway, and so I don't want you to get the wrong message from me. I want you to get a message that's actually life-giving, but the message I'm going to talk to you about is pretty sobering, actually. And so uh, I want you to work with me, and if I don't smile very much, you just poke me later and I'll do it again, right? You know, I've got it into me somehow. Uh, I was just thinking about the song that they sang. They sang, if you're washed in the blood of the Lamb, right? Are your garments spotless? We just got back from Israel. It's our first trip there ever. And one of the things that they kept emphasizing probably 20 times were the ritual baths that the uh, Hebrew world took. They had special places for them. And, you know, I, they didn't look like they'd be too clean because after 20 priests had walked walk through them, you know, I was had some question about who changed the water kind of thing. But anyway... They, they were ritual baths, and it was a big deal about being cleansed and about being pure and about being holy, and they, they, they wanted that, and that was important to them, and, but it was outside in most cases, and it was ritual. It was outside. It was done in, in, in tradition, if you will, and I think a lot of times what we do is we don't understand the grace we sing about. I, I love the songs, by the way. I, I've sung them my whole life, and I was sitting here thinking about the duet I got to do with a friend of mine in one of the songs we sang this morning, and so uh, it's just powerful language that we sing about, but what I want to 
argue with you this morning just a little bit is can we apply that? Uh, can, we, can we have something more than just uh, looking good on the outside? Can we do some work on the inside? So that's what I want to take us on a journey to do this morning. So uh, if you'll indulge me for just a minute, I'd like to pray. You can refuse this, but at least I can say it, right? Father, I'm grateful for the freedom and the time and the space and the provision and the energy and the inclination and the draw to be here. And I trust that we're in this room uh, by your providence, that it's not by mistake. And I pray that I won't get in the way of what your spirit has for us, that I can simply be a vehicle for your message to us this morning. And I thank you that each one of us uh, has ears to hear and eyes to see what you have to say to us. And so I just ask that we'll be open and soft and, and listen a little more carefully maybe than sometimes we have a tendency to do so that you can get the glory for the way life is and we can experience the joy your son died to provide. So thanks for him, Jesus. Amen. I titled this talk, The Striped Fox Syndrome. Now, I want to explain this to you just a little bit. I think that when things get difficult and hard and messy, we have a natural tendency to just cover it up. That's part of the garment piece I was thinking about in the song. I know that's not exactly what the song is all about, but I think sometimes we put on garments to look nice. I tried to look nice for you this morning. My wife was very particular about what I did, you know, before I walked out the door. So I, I think a lot of times there pain, there's pain in our lives and we just pretend that it's not there. And we won't do the work to clean it up before we paint over it. So I have a sign. I've got a picture here that I'd like you to see. I don't know if you can see it. That's roadkill. That's a fox. It's not, I hope you didn't have breakfast yet. You know, this, it's not to nauseate you. It's just to say, here's, here's a fox sitting beside the road, right? He's dead. He got killed. And so the guy that's striping the road just comes along and paints right over him. So I'm calling this the striped fox syndrome. This is where we don't do the work to address and clean up our mess. We just paint over it. So it looks good on the outside, right? And I think that's what happens to a lot of us. And so this morning I'm gonna talk about a, a tiny little narrow piece of the puzzle for us as we live life, but I find it from my experience listening to people that most people carry chunks of this around in their soul. And I'm going to encourage you this morning to offload that stuff. And the stuff that I wanna to talk to you about this morning is the hurt that comes from being in relationship. Now, there's not a person in this room that is not in relationship at some level. You all are. And the product of being in relationship is you're going to be hurt. It's the nature of relationship. There's not one relationship on the planet that has missed that. So if you'll just take a deep breath with me and not think about your mate if you're married, but think about yourself and ask the question, where have I been hurt? Or have you ever found yourself using this phrase? Usually it stops, we stop saying it out loud when we're teenagers because we find out it doesn't work, but at least we say it through being teenagers. It's just not fair. 
It's just not fair. It's not fair that they got that and we got this. It's not fair that this is happening to us. It's not fair that fill in the blank, right? It's not fair that my life's been so difficult and yours isn't. It's not fair. You know, I think you have to ask it on both sides, but we don't do that most of the time. We seldom say it's not fair that I have so much. <laughs> we, it's always that I don't have enough, right? It's just not fair. So my goal this morning is to get you to walk with me through one little narrow piece that maybe will help you uh, think about the grace of God applied to your life to set you free so that you don't have to carry that hurt and the consequent resentment that comes with it and the anger sometimes and the bitterness that sits somewhere in you. Usually when I give this talk, I find that uh, there's always people that have carried stuff with them for years, unresolved, unprocessed, toxic, corrosive, uh, to the inside of you. It hollows you out, ultimately. I get to work, like Tom said, with a lot of ministers, both uh, pastors and missionaries, and it's amazing to me how many pastors and missionaries have what I call a shriveled soul syndrome, and it comes from what I'm talking about this morning. So if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, let's begin there. Chapter 11 talks about heroes of the faith. There's two groups of heroes of the faith, ones that succeed from a biblical standpoint and ones that succeed from a biblical standpoint. Problem is we put them in two opposite categories. We have ones that succeed and ones that seem like they fail. Verse 35 is about a turnaround verse in chapter 11, and it just simply says, and there were some, something like that, that Awful things happened to them. They just got crushed. And they didn't, by any man's standard, they weren't a success. But he's telling you that both of these people, both of these groups of people walked by faith. They fully walked by faith. And he acknowledges that. And so he says, if you're going to be in this world, one of the things that you cannot do and make it through life with joy at the core is you cannot compare yourself to another group. You, if you do... What you do is you build up a bitterness and a resentment inside of you. You build up a hurt. You build up a comparison of some kind. And so in chapter 11, he tries to eliminate that. And I always thought that the opening verses in chapter 12 were simply referring back to this great group of people in chapter 11. But I'm not so sure that's exactly all that it means. So as we read chapter 12, I'm going to pause as we go through it slowly and make some observations. So here we go. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, he says, in other words, after listening to all this, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses. Now that does mean those people. It means people that have gone before you. My mother was a faithful servant of God, and she prayed for us diligently when we went into ministry. When she died, we felt palatably that she had died because we, she wasn't praying for us then. And it, it just was another step in development for us. You know, we had to go on now. And it, we were the last ones on the rope, if you, so to speak. You know, we were, we were now the anchor people. You know, it's known as being the oldest person in the room. But anyway, pretty soon we all get there, right? And it's inevitable and it's not our fault. 
But I think a part of what this cloud of witnesses is, it's, a, it's, it's like you're running a relay race and somebody's handed the baton to the next person and you're the person that handed the baton to the next person and then you're cheering on that team. That's the witnesses that he's talking about. It's not eons ago in the Old Testament, although they can be encouraging to you. It's the people that are in your race that are more encouraging to you. Does that make sense? People that are working with you. That's the people that are cheering you on because they're involved in the race as well. So it's, it's more present tense than we think. And as, as you read this, think about this cloud of witnesses, this group that's cheering you on. It's not the people in the stands and it's not aged people. It's people that are present tense in your life. And so he says, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, and I've been on relay teams and I have really cheered hard for my teams when I wasn't running the anchor, when I wasn't the last, or, or when I was running the anchor, I just hoped that they would get the baton to me early, right? So I didn't have to run quite so hard, right? So that's what he's saying here. He says, we have this great cloud. There are people that are here. Well, that's the people sitting in this room. That's exactly who you are. You ought to be cheering one another on in every possible way. He says, this cloud of witnesses is surrounding us. So on that basis, comma, he says, let us also lay aside every, it's an interesting word, isn't it? Encumbrance. Encumbrance means something different than the next phrase he uses, and the sin. Those aren't, not, aren't the same. So you've got sin on one side, and you've got encumbrances on the other, and both of them slow you down. Encumbrances slow you down. Sin and keeps you from running, actually. Okay? So that's, that's what the text says. It says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles you. So if you're entangled, you can't run. If you're encumbered, you're just weighed down. I jogged for years. I don't now, but I did for years. And I ride a bike now, and I found out that riding a bike, how much you weigh matters. It's not pretty. <laughs> I, I have a little extra here that I don't want on the bike. You know, I've got a bike that doesn't weigh very much. It weighs about a pound. So it's pretty light. You know, I've tried to do everything on that side, but I have to do something with me as well, you know. So because it is an encumbrance. And that's why when you watch the Tour de France or something, what do those guys look like? Have you seen anybody that weighs 300 pounds? You know, they don't, they're not on a bike, right? It's these skinny dudes. Why? Because they're unencumbered in order to do this the best way possible. So we're gonna talk about, we're gonna come back to and talk about one little tiny piece of what an encumbrance is having to do with this text. Let's keep going. He says, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And I played racquetball for 40 years and squash. And I played it at a pretty high level. I got beat all the time because I kept winding up with state champions or, or club champions or something, and I'd just get hammered. And I'd think, you know, well, this is not fun. Come on, I need to win sometimes. Please, let me, you know. And, and then a guy moved in across the street from us, and Nancy met him at a block party, and, and we thought, oh, goodness, these guys are buying this house. The whole neighborhood's going to go down. They won't take care of it, you know, et cetera. But they were great kids, and... And Nancy found out that this guy played racquetball. And she said, oh, my husband plays racquetball. You, you need to play with him. So I said, sure. So we 
I said, well, I'm not playing racquetball too much right now. I'm playing squash. And he says, I love squash. He said, it's really good for your timing and stuff. He said, let's play squash. So he was like my son. He was at the age young enough to be my son. And so we went to the courts and we, because we belonged to the same club and we went there and played and I could keep up with him. And, but I knew he knew his way around the court. And after a while, I realized that he had this, everything coordinated. He had like six rackets and they were all the best rackets in racquetball possible. And they were a matching bag and his shoes matched his hat. And, and you know, I mean, everything fits, you know, and I'm going, oh, what's this about? And so I began to ask him and I found out that he had quit the pro tour pro racquetball tour, and he was ranked number 11 in the world. He and his partner, his doubles partner, was ranked number one. Well, one day he gets me on the court because I come late. I, that just, there's a lesson in there for you. You know, don't go late, right? And he said, come on, you, you got to play racquetball today. And I said, no, I don't. I don't have my, my racket. He says, i got a racket. I said, I don't have my glove. He says, I've got a glove. I said, he said, I don't have glasses. He says, I've got glasses. You know, I, I mean, I just wound up on the court with him. We played three games, three games to 15, 45 points, right? I had, I think, five points total. Three were his mistakes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty good at complaining. It comes with being old. I mean, you practice it for a lifetime. You can get good at complaining about everything. Complain and gripe and moan and carry on, right? So I'm complaining and I'm just saying, woe is me. I'm really awful. I should, you shouldn't, this was a waste of time. You didn't even break a sweat. You know, I'm doing, talking smack, right? And he says, uh, shut up. Now, that wasn't very respectful, I didn't think. You know, I'm an old person. You know, come on. He says, you have all the shots I have. I says, I don't either. He says, yes, you do. You know, so we had this little argument, right? But he was going to win it. He said, the only difference between you and me is focus. I said, what? He said, the only difference between you and me is focus. He said, he said a pro player focuses on 14 or 15 out of the, out of the sh serves. He said, an open player on like 12, 13, an A player, which you are, we'll do 10 or 11. And he said, the contrast between 10 and 11 and 14 and 15 is pretty significant. And he said, let me show you. So he went back to our very first game and he began to go through each shot, where we were on the court, what the shot selection was, who served, who won the point. And his point was this. He said, the minute you focus on something that's past, you are wasting your energy. The only way your energy is useful is to focus on what's coming next. He said, in practice, you want to focus on the past, but in a game, you want to focus only on your, putting your energy into the next shot. He said, you were distracted after you thought you hit a really good uh, shot and I couldn't get to it. And he said, I didn't think I could get to it, but I pancaked it. And he said, I, I got the ball back in play. And he said, you, you could have killed it, but you had taken yourself out of the game already, because why? You lost focus. Go back to the text, and what does it say here? Fixing your eyes on Jesus. You wonder why we get lost in our world? This is why. We lose focus. And the text tells you there's only one being in the universe that's worthy of that, and it's fixing your eyes on Jesus, who alone saves, who completed his work on the cross for us, he is it. And the author of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, without blinking, without wavering, fix your eyes on him, focus on him, don't lose, start with him. 
We just got through with Easter, and it's about the cross. We sang about the cross today. And the reason it's central to the Christian message is because it's the anchor point. Paul says, without that death and resurrection, there's no hope. This is all just stupid. Let's not do it. So he's giving us hope here. And he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Joy is a relational word. And he, it's, it's his relationship with his father and the spirit. And he says, that joy allowed him to endure the cross. And then a very important phrase, he says, he despised the shame. Shame takes us out of the game. Shame is the big player. Shame keeps us from doing the work that we should. Shame keeps us from cleaning up the roadkill before we paint. Shame keeps us striping over things instead of dealing with them, right? Instead of cleaning up the mess. The, the word here, uh, despised, is an active word, and sometimes it's translated scorn. It means that you actually seek out shame and spit in its face and renounce it. It's not a passive term. It's not the shame that came to him from the cross itself, which is what Rome wanted. Rome wanted the cross to be shameful, and it was, but it wasn't the thing that was at issue here. What is at issue here is that Jesus was saying, this is not a determiner of who I am. Shame will not alter who I am, and it can't alter who we are either. And we have to be as active in despising shame in our own life. And usually, what I'm going to lead up to here in just a minute, we let go of it in our own souls. And so he says, uh, despise the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him, verse 3, who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. He did all these things for two reasons. So you won't grow weary, so you won't lose heart. He didn't do these things so that you'll be more powerful, so that you'll be, have more miracles in your life. He didn't do them for that. He just did them so that you won't what? Grow weary and you won't lose heart, that you'll keep focus, that you'll finish the course, that you'll finish the race. And that's what he starts off saying. Let's run with endurance but let's be unencumbered. So we're going to take the unencumbered piece right now, and I want to talk about hurt. Most of us have been hurt somewhere in our lives. And the hurt comes in a lot of ways, and we defend ourselves against it because we don't like to deal with it. We don't know. It's uncomfortable. It's, some of us are conflict-averse, and we don't like to deal with conflict, etc. Well, if you go on in chapter, in chapter 12, the next section in chapter 12 of Hebrews is about discipline. And most of us don't like discipline. And the author says, you know, God disciplines you, why? Because he loves you. His motivation is to, is to discipline you out of love. And most of us resist discipline, although we all really know we need it. And when we have disciplined ourselves and succeeded, those are the stories we will tell to somebody. You know, if you've gone to school a long time and you've succeeded, you're gonna, that takes discipline. And so then you will tell people that you've gone to school usually, or if you're successful in some other way, it's usually because of some kind of discipline in your life, and it may be a hobby. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's, it's there for us, and so what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this is hard stuff. So a few months back, I went to a trauma and addiction conference, and you probably all heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorder uh, is 
common, happens to a lot of people for lots of different reasons. We're all shaped differently, and you need to be able to deal with it. And if you don't deal with the stress, then the stress usually produces anxiety and depression, and that's not fun. And uh, so we treat that, and that's the number one thing that's uh, diagnosed in our culture right now. But at this conference, they introduced another thing called post-traumatic embitterment disorder, PTED. And the embitterment piece caught my ear, and I just want you to listen as I took some notes on it. And the notes went something like this, that this sets up something deeper than stress. Stress kind of opens the door. And then what you do with the incident, the incident that wasn't fair, the place that you got hurt, uh, uh, where somebody betrayed you. And I, you know, if I had time, I would tell you two or three professional betrayals in my own life that you can follow just the track of it and, and how hard it is to disarm that so that it doesn't, so that you don't live out of it. And that's part of what I'm saying to you. I don't want to be bitter. I don't want you to have to be bitter either or resented, carry resentment in some way. Well, the embitterment disorder shows up in anger and resentment and revenge and, and unforgivable anger sometimes. We won't forgive somebody, so forgiveness plays a major role in the middle of this. And what we found is that people get stuck here, and this anchors it in a negative way. Resentment anchors you in, in uh, negativity, anchors you in fear anchors you in mainly revenge if you will if you i don't know if you watch the cultural messages today but almost all movies today have a storyline about vengeance part of it's because we've taken morality out of the culture but the vengeance piece has to do with being bitter i'm going to get it back i'm going to pay you back in some way if i lose to you i want to win next time well, I got to thinking about this. I thought, what do I know? I know this, that, a, that we have a thing in uh, mental illness called personality disorder. They changed the term years ago, and I'm old enough to use the old term, so I, I have license to use the old term. You ready? It's called character disorder. Character disorder simply means that a person's interior world has not been developed, and they have to defend themselves. They're afraid that if, they, if you know them, you won't like them. You'll reject them in some way. And it, and it sets up addiction. So all addiction has that as, as the core. No, I don't care what you're addicted to. It doesn't really matter. You can be addicted to Bible studies. It doesn't matter. That addiction model talks at the core about uh, not feeling okay about yourself. There's something lacking about you. And so when I talked about this great cloud of witnesses, it's a great cloud of witnesses that are cheering you on, right? Because they think you're worthwhile and you're on the team and you need to finish the race in some way. And a lot of us don't finish the race well because we get stuck and we get stuck with bitterness and resentment. And so uh, I just, I got to thinking, you know, well, what, what about these character disordered people? And, and so I ran across two, three studies two in America, and they're about pastors. So hang on, Chris, this is not about you. Uh, <laughs> can't be about us, right? Uh, 192,000 was one number, and the other study came up with 116,000 pastors in America qualify as a, as a person who is character disordered. 
take a deep breath. And I thought, well, maybe that's just American, right? Because we're kind of an aberrant culture anyway. So uh, then I had stumbled onto one that's in the Netherlands. And they came up with the same number. It's 85% of the pastors in the evangelical world are, that are chosen by churches, etc., to stand up in front to lead are character disordered people. Now, character disorders get lots of labels, and I'm not so interested in the label, but I'm, I am interested in the dynamics of it. So here are the three elements that go into character disorder. The first one is that they self-justify. I don't like to tell you that because I'm very good at self-justifying. Self-justification means that I want to be right. I want to win. I don't want to lose. And so every time you say something that I did that was, you know, hurt you or irritating to you in some way, then I'd self-justify. I, I can self-justify anything I've figured out, you know, and I'm really good at it. I practiced for 76 years, so you did say I was old, right? Okay, so, so when I thought about this self-justification, that's just deadly. It's a whole study, by the way, in social psych, and, and it tells us that we, are, we have a hard time taking responsibility. We have a hard time accepting blame. We have a hard time saying, yes, I, I did that, and I understand that it hurt you, and it's not okay. We have a hard time showing up that way. So a lot of times our hurts just sit there, and we don't know how to process that, and we don't know how to engage with that person. We don't know what reconciliation is like, and I'd say about 1% of the population ever gets around to doing reconciliation around this stuff, and so my plea to you this morning is can we root this out in some way? The second thing that a character disordered person does is they, they say, I don't deserve to suffer. Part of it is, part of that comes from the fact that they been hurt in the first place, and they think that it's not fair, and so they think they should be able to avoid pain and suffering. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. What it says there is it says you're going to have clean pain, clean suffering. Nobody likes discipline. He says it's painful. Why? Because you're rooting the stuff out that I'm talking about this morning. It takes some discipline to not sit on your resentment for years and years and years. And most people carry this stuff around for 20, 30 years. And the third thing that marks out a character disorder is they want to win. This one's tricky because we live in America and Americans want to win. Winning means that somebody loses. And if you lose, it's going to be a wound to you that usually you keep score in, in this way. You want to get back on the court and win the next time. Real competition is when you are challenged. You're challenging yourself. How good you are in that game, how good in shape you are, and it's not whether you win or lose, it's how well you can play the game at that moment. This is tricky because our world is about winning. And it gets us in trouble because it sticks us in this stuff. So I thought maybe I could explain this to you this way. I think as a believer, I don't need to self-justify. I can be open enough, out of joy, to face the fact that I am God's child and He alone settles my soul. And then then I can own, take ownership of how I impact people. I'm forever impacting my wife in ways I don't intend, but it doesn't matter. It, the impact matters, not my intent. My intent may be good, but if it hurts her, it doesn't really matter. I need to take responsibility for the fact that I've hurt her or misrepresented her. We just had a little talk in the car this morning on the way here that showed that very same thing. And I'm going, shh. You know, because I'm so good at self-justification. We need to learn how to love our enemies. And consequently, too many people have enemies that are right next to them. But we've covered it up. 
uh, we've, we've got some kind of regular behavior, and so we don't deal with them. And the third thing is I need to have compassion toward them. Well, uh, uh, a character-disordered person can't use empathy for another person. They use empathy for themselves, so they can understand another person, but they use it for themselves. So I just want to read you a little thing about how this applies in marriage. Most people that come to me in marriage difficulty uh, come not because of money issues or sexual issues or that kind of thing. They usually come uh, for what I call the, a battle of empathy. And a character-disordered person can't have empathy for, for you because a character-disordered person has to, has to win. And if you can get yourself off your hands, you don't care whether you win or not. That's not the point. You just want to play the game well. So here, Paula tells John that she's upset and hurt by something he said, and he responded to her opinion on family matter, and she asked if in the future he could say the same thing with an attitude of kindness and our curiosity and not be so critical, simply because her opinion differs from his. And John reacts to Paula's feelings and the request by aggressively inquiring why he should offer her kindness and curiosity when last month she had shut down his experience over a different family matter and treated him unkindly. And then Paula attacks back and says, why she deserves to behave the way she did in the interaction last month and why her response last month was a reaction to what he did two months ago and she believes was unkind and aggressive. And then John barks back and says he's entitled to his behavior two months ago because of the unkind and critical things he did three months ago. Hi. I'm smiling. Anybody have those conversations ever? No, oh, no. Couples do this all the time. They fight over who's deserving of empathy. If I hurt Nancy, she deserves empathy. If she comes at me in an unfair way and I feel like all of a sudden she's my enemy, I need to learn how to love her. Isn't that the mark of a believer? Jesus said, love. Who? Your enemies. It's easy to love people that are close to you. You love them and everything's good, but it's hard sometimes, especially if you've got hurt or violation of some kind that's not been dealt with in some way. If I care about how my words hurt you, then I'm admitting that I'm to blame for causing you that pain. Empathy for you effectively cancels out empathy for me, so I can't give it to you until you give it to me. And so then we, we're here in an arms standoff and we don't know who's going to shoot first, right? Anxiety, anger, desperation, despair is the opposite of what we need. We need kindness and curiosity. The Bible talks about God's loving kindness toward us. And we're supposed to have that same kindness toward one another. The problem is that resentment is poison to a relationship. It kills the yummiest part of intimacy, namely empathy. If somebody understands you, there's no more powerful thing. Well, this is woven all through Scripture, by the way. So I thought maybe we should look at a couple other passages real quickly. Uh, but first, let's finish up Hebrews. So here he starts out saying, you need to lay aside these encumbrances. Then he says, you need to discipline yourself, and discipline is going to be painful, and I call that clean pain. Clean pain is where you get in shape. Dirty pain is where uh, things are imposed on you in some way. Clean pain is where you practice uh, to predecide to do a loving thing. You're going to be kind. Nancy said a couple years ago, she said, I'm just going to have as my mantra for this year to be kind to you. And it really changed our dance because we're very intense people and we are very 
straightforward toward one another. It's very hard sometimes. Well, let's go to the last part of Hebrews 12, and it says, verse 14, uh, it says, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, no embitterment. And by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit a blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So I want to just contrast Jacob and Esau. They're twins, remember? And, and if you go back into Genesis, Genesis 26, 25, 20. 25, they're introduced. Jacob's introduced by activity. Esau's introduced by appearance. Jacob has a spiritual appetite. Esau has a physical appetite. Jacob deals with the unseen, long-term, internal. But if you know anything about Jacob, Jacob's a mess. He's just an absolute mess. His name means deceiver, chiseler, used car salesman. You know, sorry, I hope no used car salesmen are out there. Sorry, I didn't, I don't want to bless, Sorry. But Esau, he was sensual and immediate and external. He, he's, he has the smell of the profane. Food and pleasure were the thing that drove him. And at least Esau sought after something long-term and unseen. E Jacob moved toward God. Esau didn't. Jacob wrestled with God. Great story. Esau didn't. He was motivated by self and loss. And so it's... What happened to Jacob is he didn't have any bitterness, which is really fascinating. What happened to Esau is he did have bitterness. Uh, there's a bitter cry in Genesis 27, 24. It says, he says, Esau cried out in bitterness. But here's the interesting thing. If you read this text, it says, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And it's an awkward way to think about this, but his, his remorse was in losing. It was not in what he lost. He didn't want the blessing or the birthright. He didn't care about those. What he cared about was winning. Let's scroll back to what I just said about character-disordered folks will not lose. They want to win at all costs. He didn't want to change. He wanted to win. Are you willing to be transformed by the Spirit? Well, just a couple pages over in James, he talks about wisdom. In James 3.13, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have, and here's the next word, bitter jealousy. If you're comparing yourself to somebody else and you're saying it's not fair, you're stuck. Selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This, this selfish ambition about somebody else is actually a character-disordered person that's comparing himself to another, and that comparison generates this whole resentment piece, and it's the piece that sticks most people at the core, and we just, get, we just hang there. And then look at what he says. The wisdom, that wisdom is not that which comes down from above, verse 15, but is earthly, natural, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. 
But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering. Wow. He, he just lists these two in contrast. So you don't, so we can't avoid the fact that if I'm holding on to some hurt that I have not resolved, I can't forgive, I can't figure a way through it, then what I would say to you this morning is find a way to try to make some sense out of this a little bit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Uh, Let all bitterness, he says, Paul's talking here to the Ephesian church, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Well, I think a lot of times we are not kind to ourselves. You carry bitterness, you don't care about you. Be kind to one another. Be kind to yourself. Forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Asaph in Psalm 73 talks about the same thing. He talks about bitterness showing up. And he says it's, uh, Psalm 73 is all about comparison. We're back to the same two elements. And we want to win, don't we? And God's basically saying, don't compare because it'll eat your insides up. You want to be free? You want to be washed <laughs> in the blood so that you can experience the freedom that God gives you? Well then, one of the things you have to pay attention to is your own soul. And if you're carrying around unresolved hurt, it's going to keep you from doing that. And I think we have a job to do, and that's, I think that's our job. Our job is to pay attention to this very thing. We don't transform ourselves. The Spirit transforms us. That's not our job. Our job is to take care of these kinds of things so that we can access the transformation that the Spirit's at work doing. He won't force us, but He gives us the resources we need to experience the freedom Christ died to provide for us. So I don't know where you are, but I, I guarantee you in a crowd this big, there's a bunch of us carrying around a bunch of hurt somewhere and it may be with our sister and it may be with our wife and it may be with somebody at work and maybe it doesn't really matter don't carry it out of here today i think i i told chris i think this is fabulous that we get to do communion right now because what i want to ask you to do is take a deep breath and and fix your eyes on jesus don't blink look him straight in the eye and ask for his help pray with me will you Father, thanks. Thanks that these very personal things uh, that so derail us quite often, so beset us, so drag us down, so weigh us down, so keep us from running with freedom and abundance and joy. Help us to offload these somehow, to identify them and scorn them, to not hide them any longer, to not walk another day dragging around another hurt or bitterness or resentment to care enough about ourselves to be kind enough to us that we can receive your kindness at the same time that we can access what you already have given to us thanks father for your word that warns us that we're uh, susceptible to this 
Help us not to be afraid to be empathetic to others because it actually helps it open our own souls. But Lord, help us to learn to forgive, to reconcile, to rebuild trust so that the world that watches us will say, I want that because that's peace. That's peace beyond our understanding. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.